So if you have your Bibles, turn on or turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is going to be our text for this morning. Now, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth because the church is on fire. Now, the physical property is not burning, nor is the Holy Spirit working so powerfully within them that they're just, you know, uh, bringing mountains low and raising up valleys. The church is on fire because of one reason, sin. And so Paul, the founder of the church, the apostle who laid the foundation there at Corinth, is writing to them to put out a massive church fire. The whole place is going up in flames. And in chapter four, in chapters one through four, there's one sin that Paul delineates as the source of the Corinthian problem. Do you remember what that sin is? It's the sin that if not addressed, will destroy a church. It is the sin of flesh. That's the source of it, and then it manifests itself in which way? Division, there we go. I was going to say it starts with D and ends in vision. Division, you are fleshly. Good job, RG. Chapter 3, verse 3a says, that is the reason why the church is on fire. The, The congregants are in their fleshly sin. They're not repenting even though they are born again. They're still following after the world and after their own flesh. And so that has caused now a division or a splintering discord within the body of Christ. Now, there are two environments where division flourishes. Two environments in the church, where if not addressed, division will run rampant. And the first area is when the church exalts human wisdom. What is the church? Do you remember chapter 3? The people, and the people are a structure in God's eyes. The temple of God. The church is the temple of God. It is a supernatural institution here on earth, planted and established by supernatural means. How did the church get established? What had to happen? Even before Pentecost, something had to happen. Christ had to become a man, the incarnation, incarne, in the flesh, die for our sins, be buried, rise again, and ascend to heaven. That is a supernatural event. And then the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Christ goes up, and who comes down? God's Holy Spirit, so that God's people will never be apart from any person of the divine Godhead. We will always be with God. And so now God in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit is within his people. And God's spirit wrote God's what? God's word so that we have the mind of Christ. So the church is a supernatural establishment based on a supernatural event founded, established, and protected by God himself to produce and preach God's wisdom. When you bring in and elevate man's wisdom inside God's divine church, you have the the means or the environment to create division. So me and Dasha, we went on a trip and we went to Texas wanted to check Texas out, see what all the big hype is. And so we're down there in Austin. It's exactly like downtown LA, by the way. I felt like I was right at home. We're there at the state capitol. And then we noticed right across the street, there are two Lutheran churches. Lutherans, not two different Christian churches, the same denomination, both Lutheran, but they were directly across the street from each other. And I thought that is so weird. And I figured out immediately what the determining factor or the division between this Lutheran church on this side of D Street and that side, 
of the Lutheran church. And what caused the division? Well, one had a huge rainbow flag hanging from its door and the other did not. What caused the division? Human wisdom. What is the human wisdom in that, that uh, place? It's the, one of the tenets of the atheist religion. Love is love. So they introduced a worldly hypothesis and a worldly way of thinking into a supernatural institution. And when you elevate man's wisdom in the place where God's wisdom is to be proclaimed, there will inevitably be division. So what do we see? Some people in the body say, hey, I'm all for people loving one another. It shouldn't matter what gender they are. Love is a spectrum and gender is a spectrum. So none of that should matter at all. That is human wisdom creeping within the church that divides the body of Christ. So we see that human wisdom elevated within the church can cause the church to split in a very bad way. Now, there's a second way in which this proliferation of division happens within the church. It's not only what is being said, but who is saying it. It's not only the elevation of human wisdom, it's the elevation of human leaders. That's why in chapters 1 and 2, Paul proves that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. So in the church, preach God's wisdom. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he gets into the church leaders. The, 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 oh goodness, what is the word? Not theory. The theology of men and the men themselves can drive a wedge within the body of Christ. And so that's why Paul writes. Do you remember chapter 1? And I'll read it to you. Chapter 1, and I think it's verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? It was the human leaders within the body that was causing division in the church. And it wasn't even the leaders themselves. It was the congregation's view of the leaders. Apollos, was he a really powerful preacher or was he an ah, okay preacher? Acts chapter 18 tells you and I that he was a powerhouse Paul, in 2 Corinthians 10, he writes a letter and he says that the Corinthian church was criticizing him because his letters were powerful. But when he came to speak to them, he spoke to them with timidity and without these uh, very elaborate ways of thinking. So the Corinthian church looked at Paul and says, eh, he's okay. He's not as funny not as powerful. He doesn't keep me engaged as much when I'm listening to the sermon. I, I, I don't really like Paul, but this guy, Apollos, we love him. And you can see how the selfish flesh within the, the area of elevating human leaders can cause division within the church. And so our text from last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 21. Here's the command to the church. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether of Paul or Apollos or Cephas. What's the command of the church? When it comes to human leaders, don't elevate them beyond the place in which they are to be elevated. And then we're going to see in our text, don't demean, criticize, belittle, and condemn them, for that's not the role of the church. And so here, let's open our text to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 5, and we're surveying the servant of Christ. 
Verses one through five, we are going to survey the servant of Christ. You say, why? Why are we going to look at pastors and evangelists and their role within the church? Because if you, the church, understands the role of the evangelist pastor teachers, then you will not, one, elevate them, or two, criticize and belittle them. And that's Paul's line of thinking. If you get the real role and responsibility of the elders, pastors, teachers, then the church should not exalt nor belittle the servants of God. So let's tackle it. Chapter four and starting at verse one through five. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious, conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, here's the conclusion, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So if you could think back in the days we had those job bulletin boards. Today we have job postings online. This is very similar. In verse 1, we have the job description. In verse 2, we have the requirements for the job. In verses 3 and 4, we have the attitude that is required. And then in verse 5, we have the evaluation. So in surveying evangelists, pastor, teachers, this morning we're going to look at their job duty, their requirements to fulfill their job, the attitude in serving, and then ultimately the final evaluation, verse 5. So let's look at the job duties, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Who do you think Paul is specifically referring to when he uses the word us in verse 1? The apostles and there's there's this is a specific person he has in mind. And you can go up to verse you can go up to verse uh, 21 and 22 of chapter 3. So I'll read it to you. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you whether Paul or, and who's the name? Apollos. Apollos. So who's the us referring to? Evangelists, pastor, teachers, apostles, prophets. These are the ones who lay and build the foundation of the church up, Ephesians chapter 4. So the us specifically, he's referring to Apollos and himself. Remember, Paul was the apostle who laid, planted the foundation. He goes to Ephesus and he leaves Apollos in his place to build up the word of God in the church of Corinth. So the us specifically is referring to not all Christians. Verses one through five, we're specifically targeting now. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And this is their job duty. Number one, we are servants. Servants. In Greek, there are a bunch of different words to define servant. And in fact, in the New Testament, there are five different ways that the Greek authors use five different words to talk about our servitude towards the Lord and towards his church. So one, you have oikotos. And what an oikotos is, is a house servant. You can think of a maid or a butler. And in the Roman Empire, one out of every three people in Rome was a slave. One out of every five in the empire was a slave. The slavery was a very fundamental part 
of life during the New Testament church. And so you have the, the house sitter or the housekeeper. That's one form of slave. Then you have a doulos. And that's used in the New Testament as a bond servant. You were a slave, you've been set free, and you've willingly gone back to servitude to serve your master rather than the world. That's another word, doulos. And then you have deyakonos, which means an employee. You have a retirement, you have payment, you know, there's a job, you have a schedule, you are an employee. Paul doesn't use any of those words here. In fact, he uses a very specific word rarely used in the New Testament. And this is the word, hooper pertase. Hupo means to be put under. And what the word means is an under rower. So in 50 AD, did they have super yachts? Did we have cargo ships going from China with all kinds of our goods on board? How did people go to the, across the Aegean Sea, across the Mediterranean Sea? How did people get from Rome to, let's say, Palestine? Sailboats. And it wasn't the sails that pushed the boats forward. It was the hoopergates, the people under the deck. And under the deck, there were three levels. And these were known as the triremes. And these were slaves. The top level, you had a middle level, and then you had the very bottom. The very bottom were the under rowers. These were the people when the people up top urinated, it would fall on their head. These are the people who didn't have uh, a union, a union representative. They had no breaks. They had no, absolutely no retirement package. They were the very rankest, lowest slave in the Roman Empire. That was this slave. In fact, the very bottom hooporitases, they became to known as a word that we know of subordinate. To fall under or to fall in line. They were underneath literally every single person. This is what Paul says are the positions, the job description, really the essence of who pastors, evangelists, teachers are. We are the rankest of slaves. That's the correct perspective. Now, let's look at what's happening in the church universal around us. You look at, let's say, the Catholic Church. How many people would give every possession they own to just shake the Pope's hand or to just kiss his foot? There in the St. Uh, Petersburg Basilica, St. Pete's toe is kissed off. They've literally, from hundreds and hundreds of years of migrants coming and bowing down and kissing his toe, has rubbed the toe off of that statue. We, we've taken men, human leaders, and we've elevated them to places where they are worshipped and revered. And it's just not the Catholic Church. It's everywhere. In West Africa, you have uh, these so-called apostles and prophets and evangelists that have mega churches, And their, their congregants are dirt poor. And they're driving around in their Range Rovers and their Land Rovers. And seven, eight, ten, twelve of their congregant women are knocked up by that pastor. This happens everywhere. In our own country, look at the treatment of the mega pastors. Look at how the men on TBN are treated. They're elevated to places they should not ever be. Why? Paul says those men are the rankest slaves. We have absolutely no rights. That is the pastor position. Now, here's the second area where I see a, a, a real error in, in relation to the pastor and the congregation. One is they elevate the man to the place he doesn't deserve. Uh, the second error is the flip. They look at the man and they say, he's our slave. So I want him to preach on this topic. I want them to run these programs. I want the church to operate in this manner. And if it doesn't, me and that guy, we're going to have some issues. 
And so the pastor now has become the indentured servant of the flock. Notice this truth. Who is the evangelist, pastor, teacher, a slave to? Christ, not you. Did you know that the pastors do not serve the church? The pastors serve Christ. And a byproduct of serving Christ is serving the church. Christ is our master, not the congregation. That's the correct view. He is not to be exalted or boasted up, chapter 3, verse 21, and he's not to be belittled or criticized or demeaned. He is a man called by God to be a slave and a slave only to Jesus Christ. That's one aspect of the job description. Now the second aspect, what does this person do? And here we have one of the two of the five Greek words. He is, uh, furthermore, verse one, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, this word steward means someone who is in charge of your estate. It's someone who is in charge of your prized possession and they're on the hook or they're responsible for it while you are away. That is the role of the pastor evangelist teacher, to be a steward, which is hand out goods and services on behalf of my master. So we go on a trip on Delta, and the steward or stewardess comes out, and she gives us peanuts, and she gives us some water, and she gives us a little food and a little blanket, and then she tells us how to buckle our seatbelt and in a case of emergency, where to go. She is performing goods and services on behalf of her master, Delta Airlines. The same idea with stewardship. We are called on behalf of God to give goods and services. Now, what is the responsibility of the evangelist, pastor, teacher? What are they entrusted with to give out and to serve? It's right there in verse 1. The mysteries of God. Chapter 2, we saw that the mysteries of God was specifically referring to the gospel. The word mysterion means something that was hidden, but is now been revealed. So it can mean the entire Bible. It can mean the revelatory New Testament. It can mean the gospel. In this context, it means the entire Bible. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. I'll read it to you. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do not, I share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Verse 25, here's the key. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. So who benefits? The church. What is Paul bestowing upon the church? If anybody has Colossians one twenty five, would you read it? Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. What is Paul's duty? To preach the word. To get this book inside the minds and hearts of the congregation. That is what God called him to do, to preach the word. Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been made manifested to his saints. How do we become saints? Because you are smart, good looking, funny, why? God's grace. Look at what Paul says. Now have been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul said, I'm a steward. 
and I am to give my gifts and services of the preaching of the word of God for your benefit. For your benefit. Who is Paul's son in the faith? Who is it? Timothy, Timothy, young Timothy. Now, unlike Paul, Timothy was wired very differently. He was reserved. He was quiet. He didn't want to step on toes. He was very kind of unsure about himself. And so Paul, he leaves Corinth and he goes to Ephesus and he plants the church. In Corinth, he left what pastor behind to build the church up? Apollos. Paul then leaves Ephesus and he goes on his missionary journey. And guess who he calls to pastor the church at Ephesus? His young son in the faith, Timothy. Now, Timothy's a young man. He's so overwhelmed. He's in way over his head. And so Paul then begins to write. What are you laughing at, brother? Paul then begins to write letters to him. And he's saying, hey, Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Get after it, Timothy. And then over and over, Paul continues to call Timothy to one truth. Just do this one thing, Timothy, and you're going to be A-OK. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul writes and he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Timothy was feeling weak. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What does Paul command Timothy to do? To take the word that he had learned from the apostle Paul. Take the word of God and apply it and teach it to other faithful men so that they may do what? Go and teach other people. This is the responsibility of the evangelist pastor teacher to teach faithful men to teach others. Now, exactly what is he to do? Look at verse 14. Remind them who's the them, the faithful men that he is to disciple and teach the word of God to remind them these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, verse 15, but be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. What does he say? Don't get into human wisdom. Rightly and accurately divide the word of God. Get to work in understanding and delivering this book in the correct way. Now remember, what are the two uh, areas in which division can manifest so quickly? When in the church we elevate human what? Wisdom. Wisdom and man. Look at what Paul goes on to tell Timothy. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. That's the elevation of human wisdom. And their talk will spread among them like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. What does Paul say? Timothy, rightly divide the word of truth. What happens if you don't? Elevation of worldly wisdom and the elevation of worldly leaders. And what is happening in the church at Ephesus? Division. What is happening at the church in Corinth? Division. So what is the job description of the pastor, teacher, evangelist? We are slaves to Christ and stewards of God's word. This means if you guys want a banging children's ministry, you're the ministers. If you guys want like a crazy banging outreach where people are saved, people are coming to the Lord left and right, you're the minister. If you guys want something awesome here at Journey that we don't have, you're the ministers. 
It's you. Responsibilities on you. So the job description, number two, let's look at the requirement. So parents, what is the one characteristic, and don't say it out loud, just chew on it for a second. What is the one trait or characteristic you want in a babysitter? Or if you're a homeowner or a business owner, let's say you have a flourishing business or a big home and you're going to go away across, over broad for two or three or four years and you need a property manager or you need a manager of your business or you need someone to watch your child. When you have an important asset that you can't manage yourself because you are gone, what is the one trait or quality you want in the person who is responsible over your assets? What is it? Right on. What do you want out of a babysitter more than anything else? For you be to be able to trust them. You can have the most capable business person on planet Earth. They can be just the greatest business person. But if you can't trust them, they are no good to you. So what is the requirement of the evangelist, pastor, teacher? Not necessarily to be funny or to be a great counselor or to put together one heck of a program or to build the church like a CEO. None of those things. The, the way in which God judges his servants is on one thing and one thing alone. How faithful you were to what I've called you to be. That's it trustworthiness. We have been called to be trustworthy. Listen to this parable that our Lord spoke of. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14. You know it well. Matthew 25 and verse 14. The Lord says this parable, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. Notice the, the guy with one talent wasn't required to bring five. The guy with two talents wasn't required to bring five. The guy with one was required to bring one. The guy with two was required to bring two. God just requires you not to be fruitful, but faithful. Be faithful to what the Lord has called you to. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained the two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and settled the accounts. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you trusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who had received the two talents, the same thing. And then verse 24, the one who had received the one talent came up to the master and said, Master, I knew you to be hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter no seed. And I was afraid and I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered him and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. Now, I'll read to you from the chapter before two verses. Matthew chapter 24 verse 45 and 46. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave 
whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Jesus says, oh, how happy are the slaves going to be when the master comes and finds them faithful. Now look at verse 45. What are the slaves to be faithful in? Finish it. Specifically, what household duty? You just said it. Food. What is the slave responsible for to feed the household of God? Who's the slave in this? It's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. What is their responsibility? To be faithful at delivering the food to the household. And how blessed or how happy is the man who would be found faithful in doing that thing. And so we have, going back to our text, 1 Corinthians verse 4, verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. God has called you to be faithful. God has called me to be faithful. Here's This is why we have the promise, do not grow weary in doing good. Why? Because I can preach a thousand sermons and I can look out to you and I don't know your heart and I don't know your walk and I don't know what really is going on and what's happening in your life. On the outside looking in, it can look like absolutely nothing has taken place. Labor, 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 work, 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 toil, 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 plant, 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 water, water, water. Where's the growth? Why are things not growing? Where's the, why is the seeds not sprouting? What's going on here? I don't know. What's going on here? So we are called not to walk by sight, but to walk by faith. Not growing weary and doing good, for when you are faithful, you will reap the harvest. So the job description is a slave of Christ, a steward of God's word, and the requirement is faithfulness to the task of rightly dividing the word of truth. Now let's go to the attitude required. Verses 3 and 4. But to me, it is a very small thing that I be examined by you. So the first group, the church, or by human courts. That is the world's cross-examination. In fact, I do not even examine myself. The third group, myself. Here's the attitude of the servant of God. They are to be carefree when it comes to human opinion. They are to be carefree when it comes to human opinion. The congregation's opinion, the world's opinion, and the hardest opinion of all, my own. My own opinion. The servant of God is to be carefree when it comes to the opinions of man. Why? Who do we serve Christ. We don't serve man. We don't even serve the church. We serve Christ. And then by serving Christ, we serve the church. Therefore, human opinion should not determine the direction of the flock. When you think of a shepherd and the sheep, you don't see the sheep telling the shepherd where they are to go and what pastor they're going to settle down at and what, you know, uh, lake they're going to drink from. The shepherd dictates where the flock goes. And so Paul is saying the attitude of the man of God is not to be determined or deterred or motivated by humans. This does not mean that you don't judge us in sin issues. This is not saying that the pastor does whatever they want and we don't say anything. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying when it comes to the area of performance, when it comes to how a person preaches, how the church is being run, not sin issues, they are not to be exalted nor belittled. Human opinion should have no bearing on the servant of God, even our own opinions. 
Am I doing enough? Why aren't we growing? Should I work harder? Should we try these programs? Should we do this, that, and the other? All of these self-imposed stressors that human beings can put on the servants. And here's an extra element. When we get into chapter 9, Paul's going to talk about pastors and them being paid. And, and he says, don't uh, plow the field and muzzle the ox. In other words, the farmers would plow the field, and then because of that, they would inevitably get food for them to eat. But while the ox, who is the germane to them getting their food, is plowing the field, they're muzzling him. So in other words, he's working so that they can eat, but he himself is not being fed. And then Paul says, does a soldier go to war and pay his own way? Does a farmer not farm and then not eat anything that he produces? So why is it that a pastor should not live off the congregation? Now, there's nothing wrong with pastors being paid by the church. God commanded that to be if the pastor, evangelist, teacher decides to take it. But here's the next element that maybe people in the congregation don't see. You have a pastor now. He's responsible to a board in many churches. And the congregants pay for that pastor's food and rent and everything else. So the congregation is paying for his children to eat. Do you see how sometimes there may be in certain situations where a congregation could then hold that over the leaders? and say, well, hey, you're getting paid a pretty fat salary and attendance is down in this demographic. And, you know, it can be to where the pastor is now the slave to the congregation because the pastor sees that as the only way to make money. And so the opinions of the church, the opinions of the outside world, because maybe the church isn't growing fast enough, and his own personal opinion could damper and hinder his work for the Lord. Because here's the truth. If I ask 10 Christians about an opinion, I'll get 15 responses. And so if all of you come to me and say, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to, and I'm your slave, and I say, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. I can serve the church and still not serve Christ fully. But if I serve Christ fully, I will always meet every need of the church. And so the attitude of the minister is not to be determined by the personalities, opinions, and criticisms of humans, whether that be their congregation, the world system, trying to tell the pastor that you can't preach on certain topics, to don't talk about sin and all these other things, and then ourselves, judging ourselves to condemnation. We are to be guilt-free. Why? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So we have the job description, the requirement, the attitude, and then lastly, the final evaluation. Verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. What is the time referring to? Specifically what? And does what? Jesus comes back and then does what? Judges, right? The living and the dead. The great white right throne and the, the bema seat of Christ. So Paul says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before Christ's judgment. What is that telling you and I? When Paul is saying, don't, th- don't go on passing judgment, what is the church doing? Passing judgment. And the word is crino. And it means to be little, to make contempt of, to belittle, to criticize, or to condemn at its extreme, to condemn someone to hell. But the church is not to blow a man's, you know, ego out the water, elevate them. When I was in school, that's what happened to me. I was like the great white hype. It was like, oh, there's the mega church pastor. He's coming. And it was like this hype and elevation to a place I did not ever, ever deserve. You don't elevate them. And verse 5, you don't tear them down. Why? It is not your place. Why? It's the Lord's place. 
But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Why don't we elevate or belittle? Because it causes division. Why don't we criticize church leaders? Because Christ will judge the secret things of the heart, the things done in secret and the things done in public, the things that you have no idea and the things that you do know of. Every single thing will be tried by fire, tested by the Lord. And the evangelist pastor teachers are called to be above reproach. So then in closing, I have this question for myself. Who in the world would want to be an evangelist pastor teacher? If we are a slave to Christ and we got all this going on and the pressures of the world and the pressures of the church and the pressure self-imposed upon and in a very real way, you will never see fruit this side of heaven. Why in the world would somebody want to do that? Well, number one, you're kind of called to it. It doesn't, you don't really choose it. It chooses you. Paul was going to kill Christians. Next thing you know, he's an apostle. And that was never part of his five-year business plan. He was on the Damascus Road. Next thing you know, he's a part of the church laying the foundation. So one, it's a calling. I was sweeping floors there at Ruble Middle School, and here comes the gospel. Next thing you know, I'm at a church. Now here I am. It's like, it just happens. But number two, you have to then, when called, respond. And that's why in 1 Timothy 3, it says, he who desires the office of a bishop, overseer, pastor, elder, they're all the same word. He who desires that position desires a good thing. How so? Because when you're faithful, you get rewards that others don't. And so here is why we run the race to win. And we'll close with this verse. First Peter chapter, where are we now? First Peter chapter five and verse one. Therefore, I exhort the elders. So another word for elder is bishop. Another word for bishop is overseer. Another word for overseer is a pastor teacher. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the, per- the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock. The word shepherd means feed, feed the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntary, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why does the servant of God respond to the position in the way that he does? It is for that unfading crown of glory to the elders, the pastors, the teachers who were faithful to their call. To them, God will give the crown of glory. It's this incredible, incredible truth. So we don't elevate man, the, the pastors. We don't belittle them, but rather we, we support them. We esteem them highly, and we get about our father's business. Amen? Amen. Can you see before we close how different the New Testament church structure is to how we are operating here in America. It's so radically different. And you can see now why the church has become so inept and so powerless at fighting the world because we're not operating in the way we ought to be. And we're taught the wrong things. We think church is a place. We think the church is a pastor. We think a successful church means more people. And we've completely got it backwards. And so as we're going through the book of Corinthians, um, it's my prayer that we see the church for who and what it really is. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. 
in which we get to sit at your feet, love on you, learn from you. And God, you've just called us to be trustworthy. You've called us to be faithful. And that's just not the call of the pastor. That's the call of every doulos, every bond slave of Jesus Christ. Timothy was sent to the Corinthian church in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 17, because he was faithful in the ministry. And so if you want to be used by God, if you want to have much fruit, if you want to come to the Lord and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful in the little things, now be master over much. If you want your works to sustain forever like gold, silver, and precious stones, then God has called you to be faithful and whatever that inkling is. And if you don't know what to do, just be faithful at doing something. And just like Joseph, he was faithful in Potiphar's house as a steward over all he had. And God elevated Joseph to the second in command to Pharaoh. He was faithful in little, and God made him the master over much. And so, God, will we just be found faithful in the little things so that we can do greater and greater things for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.